in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. Luke 5, 17 through 26. I'll give you a moment to get there. And it reads, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judah, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tilting into the mist before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up for them, took up what he had been laying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. A lot of people have a lot of definitions for love most of them carnal and self-serving. But God doesn't. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were helpless, hapless, hopeless, sinful, wrecked, a mess, with nothing to offer, he sent his son to die for us. Christ tasted death. He demonstrated how much God cares. And then, incredibly, he says to us, Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. What does it mean, what does it look like to walk in love? That's what I want us to talk about uh, this morning as we look at this illustration of love as it relates to friendship. If you have your copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me again, or turn back with me to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to continue looking at our series, Who's Your One?, Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. And of course, uh, we'll walk our way through the passage. But let me just key in on verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Father, thank you again for this morning, all that you've done thus far, allowing us to come together. And as uh, Tyrus Hunter mentions so often, uh, even again last night, you, you got us up. And you got us out, allowing us to arrive safely. You brought us together. 
that we might uh, celebrate your goodnesses and offer up a thank offering to you. And then, Father, to receive in return uh, the additional, the greater blessing of having you speak to us. We're so grateful uh, for your word and we're so grateful for your spirit as he drives your word into our hearts allowing us to see Christ and then cutting off everything that does not conform to him so that we look more and more like Jesus and we thank you for the process as painful as it may be uh, as rigorous rigorous and arduous as it is we thank you Uh, that you have said that you will bring to completion that which concerns us. And so uh, we thank you for this part of the process. Find Satan, we always ask, we want to hear from heaven only. Uh, We don't want the wicked one to have any part in distracting what we hear and what you say. Hide me behind the cross that only Jesus may be seen and heard. And, of course, allow us uh, to listen attentively to you as you speak to us. And we'll pledge to give you, as always, the praise and the honor and the thanksgiving. We ask all of these things, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. I want to talk to you this morning as we consider uh, who's your one and the person that God would lay on your heart to reach this year talking about friendship. And I want us to think about the fact that people need good friends. Ben Wolf, I know none of you know him, uh, he died uh, alone in Los Angeles at the age of 88 years old. No one came to claim his body. The city paid to have him buried in an unmarked grave. Which is sad, but it's not unusual. It happens in large cities all too often where people tend to live separated, disenfranchised lives. His situation was unique, however, because he was no ordinary man. You see, Glenn Wolf held a world's record. The the Guinness Book listed him as the world's most married man. He had 29 marriages to his credit. That means 29 times he stepped up to the altar with the young lady and he heard those words, will you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness or in health, right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And do you promise to keep yourself only to her as long as you both shall live? 29 times, he says, I will. Uh, However, it it never seemed to work out for him. He died leaving behind children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, a number of living ex-wives, an innumerable number of ex-in-laws. But he still died alone. No one came to claim his body. No one came to his funeral. It seemed that he sought relationships as an adult for most of his life, but he was never actually able to find it. He's an example of how many people spend their lives drifting in and out of relationships in and out of marriages, in and out of what they they hope will bring them some sense of satisfaction, only to find themselves isolated and alone. And, of course, he shows us the importance of, of having around us good friends, special, abiding friends, good relationships. Sometimes people are jaded, and they don't feel that they need friends, Back in 1997, uh, Eminem, I I think he was kind of popular back then, um, he wrote this little rap called If I Had. And, of course, it pertained to his own life 
Uh, his name is really Marshall Mathers, uh, but he, as a lot of people, they tend to separate their personal life from their professional life. But in his private personal life, he lived with some guys who dissed him and treated him bad. And so he says, what are friends? Friends are people that you think are your friends, but they're really your enemies with secret identities and disguises to hide their true colors. So just when you think you're close enough to be brothers, uh, they want to come back and cut your throat when you ain't looking. Now, if that's your view of friendship, then, of course, you aren't going to have any friends. You aren't going to really want to be close to anybody. And, of course, Eminem, thinking back on his private life, wrote those lyrics. And, of course, um, I don't know if he still feels that way now that he's a multimillionaire. But friendship is very, very important. In this particular passage, uh, we see real friendship at work. Real friendship, not pretend friendship. Someone said that a friend... (laughs) Uh, is a person who won't divulge secrets about you, even if tempted with money or with chocolate, right? A real friend is a person who will hide all those pictures they have that make you look like a beached whale. (laughs) A friend is a person who does their knocking before they come instead of after they leave. Those are real friends. A real friend is someone who knows everything about you, but they love you anyway, right? If you're single, that's the one you want to marry and take home. We all need friends. We all need real friends. And this morning, we want to look at this story about healing the paralytic, and we want to, we want to see what these friends are like so we can understand what real friends do. And of course, the story begins as it always begins with the Jesus Christ. And so I want to mention three things about Jesus, three things, three factors in the life of Christ. If you look here, uh, I just want you to go back. Now, we walked through this on Wednesday night. So this is the recap for those of you that actually tune in on Wednesday night and, and then listen while you're tuned in on Zoom. Uh, but we walk through Uh, this particular section because I just love this story. One of the things that that you that marked the life of Jesus was his compassion. And you know, I I read his life and you know many times, you know, I just I just stare up into the sky and say, Lord, I am so unlike you. Strengthen me to 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 be like you. But Look at is his compassion. We see in verses 12 through uh, 13. I mentioned this Wednesday night it happened. Uh, there was in, in a certain city a man uh, who was full of leprosy, right? I mentioned Wednesday night. The fact that it says he was full of leprosy means his case had advanced to a great degree such that uh, he had been under the, the curse of this affliction for a long time. And you know when you're leprous, there's no cure and there's only separation and you have to separate yourself from everybody else. You can't have any physical contact because it's highly contagious. And even if somebody's coming your way, you have to step back and you have to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that they know they're warned not to come close to you. And this man had an advanced case, so he was like that a long time. But then it says that he saw Jesus and he fell on his face and he implored him saying, Lord, Lord, if you're willing, if you want to, you can make me clean. You can solve my problem. You can heal my affliction. As I mentioned, I'm struck by that. He says, or verse 13 it said Jesus did the undoable. He did the unthinkable. He did the thing that you just don't do. He, he could have just said, okay, you got it. Be healed. But no, he went over and he touched the untouchable. And then he brought healing. He didn't have to touch the man to heal him, but he wanted to. 
to show him how valuable he was. And you know, people, people need that touch today. Uh, sometimes, you know, you may be, I don't know if you get annoyed, I don't really care, but I'm, well, that doesn't sound good. But, you know, some, I, I walk down the, the side of the aisle and I'll pass the man, I, you know, I just touch him on the shoulder, I don't have to do that. I, I just do, you know, uh, because I, I remember uh, when I was a young man sitting in the church and, uh, you know, sitting on the edge by myself. And I remember Urban Whitaker came up to me and he just put his hand on my shoulder. And even though we were friends, I remember the warm feeling I had just thinking, you know, he didn't have to do that. He, he just wanted to do that. He wanted to, to put his hand on my shoulder. He wanted to touch me. And, and it meant a lot to me to have a friend who wants to be with you and close to you like that. And so I just make a habit of doing that. I, I just, you know, touch people on the shoulders, on the arm or, or something. It's just a habit now. But Jesus, he, he touched this man. He was compassionate like that. And I, I want to be like him. And I want to see people and care about them. Not only that, uh, notice uh, verse 16, <laughs> another remarkable thing about Jesus. Luke mentions um, Going back to 15, it says the report went around concerning him all the more as Jesus told the man, don't tell anybody, right? And of course, you know what happens when you say wet paint, don't touch. What happens? Right. So he said, don't tell anybody. Go show yourself to the priest. And I'm sure before he even got to the priest, he had already told about 20 people. But anyway, it says the report went around concerning him all the more great multitudes came to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. But Luke says this. Now in Mark, it, it, it talks about the fact that Christ healed them. And then it says at night he went out and he, uh, or he got up early in the morning, he went out and he prayed. But here, Luke says he himself often withdrew into the wilderness. And prayed. You may see the word often in italicized there in italics because that's not in the original. It's picked up from the context there, from the, the verb endings, uh, because it's a present tense. And so uh, it's not something that did, he did one time. That was his habit pattern. He prayed often. Jesus was a man of prayer. And I remember E.M. Bounds making the statement, little prayer, little power. Much prayer, much power. It's, it's so hard, it seems, these days to, to, to spend quality time in prayer because so many things press in and, and crowd out that time with God. And I believe the wicked one delights in that. Satan doesn't tremble when you open your Bible. You know that, right? I mean, he quotes scripture, too. He takes it out of context, but he quotes scripture. Oh, but he trembles when you get on your knees, when you talk to the Father, because that's when things happen. And I'll say it again. I know you get tired of me saying it, but that's okay, too. Things happen when you pray, right, that don't happen when you don't pray. So you just, just pray, and Jesus himself would slip away and pray. Prayer marked his life. The third thing that marked Jesus' life here, verse 24, his authority. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. Jesus was the kind of man who could bring results in life. And because Jesus could bring results in life, uh, then, of course, he was the one that you went to when you needed results. You know, I told you before about that dog that had a gimp leg and the surgeon saw him on the street and picked him up and carried him home and bandaged him up and, and uh, cared for him, fed him and everything until the, the dog's leg was healed. And then one day he looked up and he opened the door. The dog ran out and was gone. You know, and thought, well, I did all of that for the dog and the dog is gone. Well, you know, about three, four weeks later, that dog came back, followed by another dog with a gimp leg, right? See, even, even a dog has sense enough to know how to go take his friends to where he can get help. 
because he know where he got help. And those of us who've been healed by Christ, we've been set free from the dilemma of sin, the, the oppression of sin. Our lives have been straightened out. Uh, we know where to go for people to get help. You would think that we would do that. But anyway, Jesus has authority. And so since he could get things done, then he's the one you go to. When people need things done, you take them to Jesus. And that's what this story's about. These men... They heard about Jesus. Perhaps some of them even saw what he had done for others. And, and then they've got this friend. And this friend is in, in he can't move. Infirmed is what the word I, I couldn't get out of my mouth. He's infirmed. He, he can't move. He can't do anything for himself. And, and they say, listen, we've got to get him to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who can heal and Jesus can change his circumstance. He can turn his life around. So they wanted to get him to Jesus. And of course, there came a day, it says here, oops, went too far. On a certain day as he was teaching and and there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. (laughs) When the New Living Translation, it it says it seems that every time Jesus was doing anything, these guys showed up just to be contrary. And they were there, these religious nuts, those religious men. There are three things about them in contrast to Jesus that I noticed, three factors about the religious leaders. Uh, Number one, they knew a lot. They studied the law. They knew what the scripture said, but they didn't really care so much. Sometimes we can have a lot of information. In fact, when when that entourage came from Persia saying, where is he that was born king of the Jews? We saw his star. We've come to worship him. And they came to Jerusalem and the whole city was upset. And they asked They went to the king because you would assume that it would be at the palace. Herod didn't know. He asked the religious leaders and right off the bat said, oh yeah, he's born in Bethlehem. It's five miles down the road because the scriptures say they knew what the word of God said. But the scriptures don't say that either one of those guys got up and went down to Bethlehem to to check this out. Oh, I mean, they had their stuff going. And that's how these men were. They, they knew a lot, but they didn't care so much for people. They had a, a lot of prestige. People thought that the Pharisees were the most religiously astute, devout, godly men that they knew. And if Jesus hadn't come along, everybody would have thought that. But Jesus pulled the curtain back and exposed their hypocrisy. And if you think Jesus never got angry, read Matthew 23 where he takes these guys to task for their hypocrisy and calling them blind guys, leading people astray. They had prestige, but they didn't have any power. They couldn't change. They, they, they were just like the law. And, you know, the law has no power. In fact, all the law ever did, all the law ever does, is tell you when you're wrong. That's all it ever does. You go here, and you go here, and you, you know, it just points out all of your sins, all of your weaknesses, all of your foibles. It's, it's constantly criticizing you for not doing the thing that God says you ought to do, but the law cannot give you the power to do any of it. That's why Paul says the law brings a curse, because all it does is condemn you. It can't make you right with God. And that's what these guys were like. And in fact, Jesus says in Matthew 23, they they make up all these rules, the Mishnah, 613 specific rules they have put together to help you figure out what God meant by what he said. And they put this whole bundle of rules, this book together, and they said, listen, uh, if you you break the commandment, uh, you, you can be forgiven because God is forgiven. But if you break the rules of the Mishnah, there's no forgiveness. They elevated their own rules above God's word. 
And so, of course, the people were so intimidated by them. And then they bound up all these rules and laid them on them. Jesus said, you, you load them down with all these rules and, and regulations. But, you know, you wouldn't even so much as use your little finger to help lighten the load. You don't care about people. That's how they were. And they were, they were Jesus' worst critics. They had nothing good to say about Jesus. And just like the law can't save anybody because it can't change what you are, these men could not lead anyone to a correct knowledge of God. But fortunately, they are comic relief in this story. The real story is about these men, these friends. It says that while Jesus was there, there was power from the Lord to to, to heal the people there. And then all of a sudden, uh, these men showed up. Four facts about these men. I'm just going to give you four quick facts. And then, hey, listen, we'll be done. Ah, Not because of Super Bowl Sunday. Because this is just a short story. Four facts about friends. You know, these men, they, they had a mission. Right? They had a mission. They said, listen, we, we got one purpose and one purpose only. We're going to put this dude on a mat. We're going to lift up this mat, and we're going to walk all the way until we get him to Jesus. And they weren't going to let anything keep them. They didn't say, well, you know, I, I have a doctor's appointment. You know, I've got the, no, 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 no. Listen, they have one mission. You know, Jesus, he had a mission statement. Did you know that? Luke 19.10. He said, the Son of Man has come to what? To seek and to save that which was lost. That's the only reason he came. That's why he came. Jesus came on mission, and he came to accomplish the mission. These men had a mission. Let me ask you a few questions. I'll put them on the next slide. Do you have a mission? What is it that that, that drives you? What, What gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, Jack Worson's son, when asked that question, what is it that gets your dad out of bed in the morning? Jack Worson is the founder of Word of Life. He says, the thing that gets my dad out of bed in the morning is the thought that today someone might come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what gets him out of bed in the morning. What, What is it? That, that, that drives you? What is the thing that, that turns your crank? What is the thing that causes you to say, listen, I've got to do the will of God today. You know, Jim Peterson was, um, he wrote this uh, evangelism, this, this book, Lifestyle Evangelism. And uh, he tells a story. He says uh, he was attending church and he wanted to witness to his neighbor and his neighbor uh, would get up in the morning on Sunday mornings while he's getting ready to go to church. The neighbor got up and went jogging. So he could never really invite the guy to church. He could never really talk to the guy. And so one day he says to the pastor, he says, Pastor, um, listen, I'm not going to be in church for a while. Why not? He says, because I have a neighbor that goes jogging on Sunday morning. I'm going to jog with him. He did. So he stopped coming to church. And he started jogging with his friends. And about four months later, he and that friend walked in. He had led his friend to faith in Christ. That's what drove him. Now, I don't know if the people that aren't here this morning are absent because they've got friends who are otherwise occupied on Sunday morning. I'm I'm not going to impugn their motives. And if I don't see you here on Sunday morning, it probably should be because you have a friend that drives a well in mind. But the thing is, what, what, what drives you? What, what gives you pause to, to, to cause you to think, well, this is the most important thing to me? What things spiritually has God put on your heart that you long to come to see? That you long to see come to fruition? I mean, in your lifetime. What, what, what kind of goals has God laid on your heart? Has he laid any goals on your heart? You say, well, I don't know. I don't really spend a lot of time with God. Well, okay, then you wouldn't really have 
much of an impression. But if there's no impression on your heart, it may be because you're not spending enough time listening to his voice. So that he impresses on your heart what matters to him. Do you have kingdom dreams of, of seeing people come to faith in Christ? Is that what you think about? Or are you obsessed with other things? You know, <laughs> my wife claims I have a different obsession. I won't tell you what it is. But, well, okay, I'll tell you what it is. Because <laughs> I don't want you thinking Pastor Red's obsessed with that. Okay, because I, I manage three different portfolios, I tend to talk about finances a lot. And she says, you're just obsessed with money. I'm like, no, I'm not. I just want to make sure I manage it well. <laughs> so I have to check, you know, every day. <laughs> but, but, you know, sometimes, I mean, you know, I feel guilty. And I say, Lord, I am not checking my portfolio until Friday. <laughs> You know, just go a whole week. You know, but anyway, what is it that drives you? When was the last time you stopped to think about the thing that drives you? And to say, well, what does God want me to do about this? Well, these, these men, they, they had a mission. What's your mission? What do you want? Secondly, uh, these men, they had an eager expectation. They said... If we don't do anything else, we, we got to get him to Jesus. They, they were consumed with just that one thing, having their friend be healed by Jesus Christ. Now, is that a, a driving compulsion in my heart? When I look at my neighbors, I put their name on my hit list. I mean, on my, um, excuse me. <clears throat> you know, we, in, in event, in, um, our discipleship classes, we, we have uh, an evangelism prayer list that we put together in the first course. Um, and I put my neighbor's names on the prayer list, and as I've been praying for them, um, you know, I just, it's, it's, it's been winter here in Michigan, I mean, in, um, in uh, Georgia. I mean, this is, a, this, is a, this is summer almost in uh, Michigan, but, you know, of all things, that dude cut his grass. You know, so annoying. I mean, um, he, well, I mean, he's got that better homes and gardens uh, line that you know makes yours look like you've been absent for three months. But he was out cutting his grass, and as I was coming home, so I stopped and I, I said, "Hey, how you doing?" He says, "I'm doing well." And he said, "How were things at the church?" That shocked me. I'm like, wow, of all the things he could ask me, he says, how are things at the church? That's my opening, you know. So we talked to me. And I said, okay, Lord, we're going we're gonna to see what you do with this as we just continue to talk and develop our relationships. And, and I mean, they, he says, they're in a church. I don't ever see them go. But he says, they're in a church. And so, you know, I'm just praying and just working and waiting to see what God will do. But, you know, I mean, he, he's working it out because I'm praying for them. And, you know, God will open up opportunities. Is that, is that your eager expectation? You say, you know, I believe that God is going to reach my neighbor, my coworker, my friend. You know, and that's, that's what I'm working for. And these men, they wanted to see their friend come to Jesus, which, of course, leads us uh, to the next thing. They encountered an obstacle. First, well, before we do that, there are some questions. Go back. I'm sorry. Let me ask those two questions about you. Do you have an eager expectation of seeing come, someone come to faith in Christ? Is, is that what's on your heart? You say, well, I don't ever think about stuff like that. Okay. The mission of Christ was to seek and to save what was lost. And we are his disciples. We're his followers, his students. And as we saw last week, the student hung out with the teacher for the express purpose of, of learning his ways so they could imitate his ways uh, so they can be like him. 
So I guess I'm asking myself, because really these are the questions I ask me, uh, am I excited about seeing someone come to faith in Christ? Uh, and does that, that expectation, is it compelling enough so it moves me to do something about it? You know, someone said when it comes to serving Christ, many of us stop at nothing, right? We stop at nothing. And I, I, don't, I don't want that to be me. I, I want to see them come to faith in Christ. I want to see their family come to faith in Christ. And, and I don't want to wait too long because, you know, I did that when we were in Michigan. I had a neighbor. We, we knew him over 30 years. And over 30 years, I said, you know, one of these days. <laughs> and we're in Georgia now. <laughs> and I'm still, you know, one of these days. And I, I went to their house a couple of times and I walked through the gospel a couple of times and he even, he, first he would call me Ray and then he started calling me Reverend Smith and then, you know, he's, he's giving me the titles and it's all an opening and yet I never got in his face and said, Welton, where are you in terms of your relationship with God? Have you come to the place in your spiritual journey where you can say for sure that if you died today that you'd be in heaven? Or would you say there's something you're still working on? Never popped that question. His wife died, you know, a couple of years ago. And she and my wife were best friends. And it really hurt our hearts that she passed because she was so faithfully loyal and involved in the church. Her husband never went to church. But anyway, I, I let the opportunity pass. And I still have him on my prayer list, so I'm still praying for him every week. But, you know, does the expectation move you to action? Do you ever decide to get past go and collect the 200 bucks, you know? Oh, sorry, Monopoly. Um, but anyway, the third thing is that they had, an, they had obstacles, right? They had obstacles. And, of course, they had obstacles. They, they came in, they're carrying the guy on the stretcher, and it's like six billion people standing up there. Well, quite a few people. I mean, the place is packed. There are people all in the house. There are people all over the windows. There are people standing outside looking, gawking, talking. And they're like, excuse me, can, can we get, you, know I mean? you see, we got a man, he can't even move. They don't care. Like, dude, where's your turn? You know, we're trying to see what Jesus does. He might heal somebody today. You know, we don't want to miss the show. We got tickets. Uh, well, anyway, they, they're just, they're watching, and they don't have time for these people. They're like, well, we came all this way to get our friend to Jesus, and y'all in the way. What do you do? You say, well, apparently it's not the will of God that you get healed, buddy. We're just going to take you back. Is that, that's, that's not, is that what friends do? No. They, they come all this way, and they know that the solution to his problem lies in getting him to Jesus. And, and so, even though there was an obstacle there, they were not going to let the obstacle stop them from getting their friend to Jesus. So then here comes the question, <laughs> right? Next slide. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, what obstacles derail you to keep you from the mission? You say, well, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think they're going to be interested. I, I told you, I worked with a guy. He was a little Indian guy. He's from India, an Indian guy. And, um, you know, Zanil Jamal. And Zanil and I, we were pharmacists. We, you know, we were, we didn't work side by side. We worked opposite shifts. But as we were in a face, you know, uh, Zanil, he would see me. I would talk to people about Christ all the time. And, you know, I had these tracts, and I would be giving out tracts to people all the time, but I never gave any tracts to Zanil. I mean, he's Indian. He's Hindu. He's obviously not interested in that stuff. I never shared the gospel with him. Listen, he's not interested. The last day I was there before we packed up, I, I left to quit the job, and we went to seminary. The last day I was there, I'm like, well, you know what? For what it's worth, I'm just going to get his due to track just cause I, so I can say I, I didn't, I fulfilled my responsibility. 
And I said, Zanil, I want you to have this. And he got the track, and he looked at it, and he looked at me, and he said, finally, finally, I get one too. And that broke my heart. Like all this time, he had saw me pass out tracks and, and share the gospel with people and, and lead people on the job to faith. I never took time to talk to him. And apparently he really was interested in hearing about Christ. What, what obstacles derail you? You say, well, they're not interested. You don't know what they are. You don't know what God's doing in their life. You don't know how God's moving in their heart. You don't know what needs have surfaced. And you don't know how they're looking at you and hoping that they could get what you have. You don't know. But you can let the obstacles that Satan points out that you know, uh, you know he curses a lot. You know he fights all the time. He's a brawler. He ain't going to have time for that. The first guy ever led the faith at the post office was the guy, the one guy to dock who got into fights and cursed people out every day. He was the first person that ever came to faith in Christ. I never thought he would. I wasn't interested in sharing the gospel with him. He started asking me questions. You're real religious, aren't you? How did you get like that? I'm like, really? And so I started my back to him sharing the gospel with him, and he was quiet. I turned around. This big dude, he played football. He's, he's crying. And I said, Sam, would you, would you like to receive Christ? He said, yeah. You never know what God will do. What obstacles? What, what would it look like for you to, to, to dig a hole in the roof to say, listen, I, I know it ain't my house, but I'm a lot, I can fix this house back, but my friend needs Jesus. And I'm, I'm not going to let the crowd keep me from getting him to Jesus, whatever the obstacle is. They dug a hole through the roof, and they lowered a friend right in front of Jesus. Of course, the final thing is that uh, they got more than they bargained for. And I I was struck by this. When I, I look at what it says here, It says, this man was paralyzed. They brought him and they laid him before him and because they, to lay before him because they couldn't find a way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the housetop, let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, don't miss that. When he saw the lengths to which they went to help their friend. But notice what he said, verse 20. He didn't say, wow, y'all, you guys really love your friend. Okay, you get the heal. That's not what he said. He said, sir, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what's that got to do with the price? That has everything to do with the price. You see, sometimes, and we talked about this in Sunday school, you know, how that sometimes the, the world says people, they, they need a little more education. They need a little more finances. We need to take money from the rich, and we need to dole out some more to the poor. We need to give them opportunities. We need to make sure we sh- shut down racism and, and all of these uh, isms because that's the problem. No, there's one great problem that separates all of humanity from God. And that's sin. See, they, Jesus didn't, he, I mean, he was going to heal the guy. But he deliberately pointed out the biggest problem that he had. And the biggest problem that he had was not the fact that he was paralyzed. The biggest problem he had is that he had been estranged from the God who created him and loves him. And once his sins were dealt with, get the healing. Of course, he also wanted to show the Pharisees that he had authority to do that. But he dealt with the sin issue first. And many times we're, we're guilty of thinking, you know, we need to do everything else. I, I told you about the guy who, 
was a college student and he had a roommate and the roommate was an atheist and he was talking to his atheistic roommate about the Lord and the guy said, well, you know, I don't even believe the Bible. I'm not sure there's a God. I don't believe in God. And so he says, well, if you could prove there's a God, then I would believe maybe. So he said, okay. He went to the library and he started digging through and he, he did articles and research, scientific proof. And so he thought he could find. And he got all of this information and evidence that demands a verdict and more evidence that demands a verdict and all these books. And, and he got all this information and he brought it back and he gave it to his friend. And his friend says, wow, I can't believe you find this much data. He says, you know, if I have some time, maybe I'll read it. He said, I did all of that. And he's not interested. So he's going to a campus Bible study and one of the professors is is the teacher of the Bible study. He says, well, I've got this roommate. He's an atheist. He said, well, let's go talk to him. He said, oh, yeah, good. And you can, you can give him some arguments about Christ. And he said, they walk into the room. He introduced himself. And then he, he just shared the gospel with the guy. And the guy bowed his head and received Christ. He said, what, what happened to all of those arguments? And, and then it dawned on him, he says, my problem is that I underestimated his problem. I thought his problem was intellectual. But his problem wasn't intellectual at all. His problem was spiritual. He was blind. And because he was spiritually blind, he couldn't see. But the gospel, the light shone. It opened his understanding, and he gave his life to Christ. And so you can, you can say, I, I need to deal with all of these other issues that they're facing. The first and most important issue is where you stand before a just and holy God. And if you're right with him, all of the world gets right. And if you're not right with him, none of the world makes any sense. But they got more than they bargained for. They said, we got to get him healed and his sin got forgiven. And he got to shut the mouths of these Pharisees. So then, the last question, because my time's gone. Think about it. How, how did others play a role in you coming to faith in Christ? Did, did God use any people, or, or were you walking down the street and you saw a tree, and the tree convinced you that there was a God and you gave your life to Christ? Is that what happened? Probably not. In fact, I would say most definitely not. Somebody, somewhere, cared enough about you to tell you about the God who loves you and the fact that the thing that separates you from him is your sin and that you are deliberately choosing to resist and deny the lordship of the one who created you. And there's a judgment looming over you for that but he sent his son to rescue you from that judgment because he loves you. And then you saw that love and you understood that Christ paid the penalty so you wouldn't have to. And then you gave your life to Christ. Other people played a role in that. And Christ changed your life, did he not? He transformed you. He took you out of darkness and he gave you his light. So then the question, why would you not long for that same kind of transformation in the life of a friend? I mean, if you have a friend, if there are others that you really care about, wouldn't you really, really want them to be helped and healed and made whole? I mean, that's what friendship is all about. Back when I was in college, I um, I went to a, a conference room. They had a group from a Christian college. They were doing a little concert. And they sang this song called Forgive Me, My Friend. I just want to end with that. It says, forgive me, my friend. I failed you. I should have realized you were watching me hoping for a glimpse of the Christ I know. 
Is all you seen just patterns, mere routines, and the pious words, when what you sought was love? Forgive me, my friend, I- I've let you down. I haven't really showed what you wanted to see, a glimpse of Christ living in me. Forgive me, and I'll try, my friend. Forgive me, and I'll pray that he will live his life in me, shining forth each day. So you will see the joy that he gives. So you will feel the peace that I know. So you will find the love that he can bestow. So please forgive me, my friend. For Jesus loves you so. Who's your one? Does it break your heart? that that person might be facing a Christless eternity. How can you be silent and say that you care? Father, thank you so much again. Thank you for your love for us. It is incredible. It is matchless. It is the only thing that saves and redeems. And Father, because of that, Uh, You sent our Lord uh, to rescue us. We had nothing to offer you. We didn't deserve to be rescued. It's not as though we could bring any gifts to you, add anything to you. You are totally, wholly self-sufficient. But solely for our sakes, you gave. You sent him, and Christ, you stretched out yourself on the cross. You pay such an awful, cruel, high price. That's how dreadful sin is. That's how awful it is. And that's how much misery it brings. And the thought that there is a Christless eternity looming for those who willfully reject you when there could be peace and purpose and meaning that there could be joy in their life and peace and that your spirit would produce goodness and wholeness and faithfulness and patience and kindness in them. And the only thing that lacks is that the messenger will not share the message. Strengthen us to live the gospel that we might be able to live the gospel in compelling ways. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today who still has yet to decide that Jesus Christ is the answer to the issues of life. They've still been duped into thinking that they're better off trying to go their own way. I pray that you open their eyes, their understanding, help them to see that the solution to the issues of life all lie in Jesus. He is the designer of life the originator, and the one who makes it work well. Open their eyes, turn their hearts, allow them to surrender to Christ today. And for those of us who know Christ, may we stop at nothing to share Christ. May we get past go, strengthen us to walk with you. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake.